Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers and here comes another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the story of wrestling in America as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. Let's step back into the ring and back into time as we get wall to wall and treetop tall with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Hey, Ron, Happy New Year. Oh, same here to you, Dave. And you, everybody out there listening. Heck yeah. Uh, Are you excited about football? Oh, man. <laughs> have you, he's going to be full of it. Have you know? had enough football? Oh, yeah, and I've just about had enough, <laughs> too, since you mentioned it. You know, and so I think uh, uh, one more uh, day after this one, one more game, I guess, college-wise, after this this day and uh i guess that'll be the the end of it and uh yeah that's crazy i can't believe that the, that we've been through this season your beloved volunteers are playing on this new year's day later today so i think that's going to be cool you got a couple of semifinal games and a couple of others that are going to be out there today yeah yeah man uh it's a it's a shame it's all going to be gone but uh well it just makes you look forward to the next fall man Absolutely. And as we get going, let me say congratulations, Stud, for the great reaction by fans around the world last week to your special Christmas Day 1979 Studcast. And welcome to the New Year's Day 1979, actually 1980 Studcast. Hopefully, the listeners are going to, and I know they will, the fans are going to respond the same way on this one today. This second holiday release is going to be focusing on on Southeastern's New Year Day card in Mobile, Alabama, January 1st, 1980, exactly 44 years ago. Yeah, man, that's that's for sure, Coscrut. That's hard to believe, man. But I've been waiting to do something special like this on Christmas and New Year's Day since I started doing these studcasts, really, and that's been more than six years ago now. So uh, last week's studcast had a very good card and an extremely good TV show that promoted that card. And it even had some videos of matches from the Tennessee Territory that told kind of a unique story to the Gulf Coast fans uh, because they didn't even realize there was second Southeastern Territory. And uh, fans uh, weren't even aware what was going on up there in Tennessee. Well, it was beautiful how you used that Tennessee Territory video of Jimmy Golden turning heel on your father in the summer of 1979. That was only seven months earlier 
And it was such a cool way to set up and explain to Gulf Coast fans why Jimmy Golden had gone from being a fan favorite in Tennessee to being despised. So that is what he had already become in the Gulf Coast as well, since he and Norville Austin had arrived. Yeah, you know, Rob and I, we used that video kind of as a Christmas present, too, to bring our father in to spend Christmas and New Year's with us. So we cheated on it a little bit and got two two things out of it. So it was the first Christmas in 10 years that Rob and I had been able to see him, spend time with him. And uh, whilst we had some precious moments in the ring with him, too, in this in this uh, week that he was there. <laughs> so uh, it was a special Christmas for us, for darn sure. All right. So where are we riding, Ron, in this special New Year's Day 1980 Studcast? How we set this up? Well, we're going to begin in Tennessee, man, with something totally new to Studcast. Uh, I'm going to call these new weekly segments uh, the Sports Hidden History, with each one kind of a lesson for the listener out there. And I've wanted to do something like this for a long time, to spend some special time in each of these studcasts to focus on one wrestling-related subject and take a deep dive into it, kind of to give fans a lesson each week that makes them more knowledgeable about the sport we all love. So the first one that we're going to be doing, first sports hidden history lesson, is going to be very personal to me. It is going to cover something that has bothered me for many years, Uh, And that's the ultimate failure of the southeastern Tennessee Territory that I'd spent so much time, effort, blood, sweat, and tears, man, developing. And uh, how I watched helplessly, man, as the new owners failed miserably at at a smooth transition that I was hoping for of that territory from me to the Georgia owners. And had it been done differently, it could have led to a total revival of southeastern instead of its death, basically. And as a result, the territory crawled along after the sale for four years uh, and had two different sets of owners uh, during that time before uh, leaving the best wrestling fans in the world with no wrestling at all, man. It was really a shame. So uh, Mm. we're going to take a look at that. And uh, then, Dave, we're also going to ride south into a territory that was already doing very, very well but was about to explode in popularity. We're going to focus on the first card, as you mentioned earlier, of the Southeastern Gulf Coast Territory in the decade of the 1980s. That card's in Mobile. Uh, We'll talk about that Mobile, Alabama event. Uh, And that event's going to set the tone basically for the next seven years. So I'm going to break down the TV show that promotes that card uh, with more eye-opening videos from Tennessee, uh, And then we'll assist uh, in the Gulf Coast explosion, those videos, and the growth uh, that was going to be coming in 1980. I'll give everybody the results of an amazing card and the attendances uh, at the end of that uh, first full week in January of 1980. Then hopefully we're going to have enough time for another learning tree question that we didn't have time for last week, I'm sorry to say. All right, Ron, it's the first day of the year, so you need to be setting, uh, getting off on a good foot, don't you think, on the learning tree? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I think. Well, we're going to shoot for it, my man. Okay, I had no idea that you felt the, the transition, by the way, of the Tennessee Territory from you to Jim Barnett and Fred Ward, that you really felt that it was a failure. 
this uh, this first sports hidden history lesson really should be very interesting. So where do you begin with a subject like this? Well, let's start at the very beginning, Dave. Um, and, uh, <laughs> the first long conversation with Jim Barnett and uh, Fred Ward came on the day that they committed to buy Southeastern territory from me. And uh, we sat down. Uh, actually, they were in Knoxville. And uh, they asked me the, the, a question. They said, how would you handle this if we were buying your territory instead of the other way around? So uh, I began uh, by doing my best to explain what the mindset was of the five all-star wrestlers who were now competing against their company at this point. You know, and uh, they intended to... Uh, I tried to explain to them that uh, that they intended to destroy wrestling there forever. If they couldn't win the war, that was going to be their intention to destroy wrestling in Knoxville and all of East Tennessee up into Kentucky as far as Southeastern went. And I wanted them uh, not to underestimate it or to think that I was being ridiculous about this assessment uh, of what I thought was their, their intentions was. Mm-hmm. So, it was going to be almost 40 years, Dave, before I would find out how close my assessment was to being correct. In fact, in 2018, I was sent a video that few had ever seen. Uh, it was recorded by the Knoxville Five in the early 1980s, probably about a year after I left Tennessee, sold and left. And it was done, as I predicted, when they realized that they could not win the war and were about to finally leave Knoxville and give it up, basically. And thankfully, it had never been released. And uh, that video, it's called uh, the Plan B video. Uh, and so, you know, all five of them, Bob Root, uh, Ronnie Garvin, Bob Orton Jr., Ron Wright, and the great Malenko, each of them on the same day, somewhere in nineteen early 1980s, made a video telling everything about professional wrestling, how it worked, and how it was controlled. <laughs> and, and, it, and it went far beyond anything I had imagined. When I told Barnett and Ward about their intent to kill wrestling in the Knoxville Territory, if they didn't win the war, I had no idea they would do something like this. So if this video had ever reached the mainstream media, and was played anywhere in the world, it would have killed the sport worldwide almost immediately. We're, that's just incredible. Were these guys, these guys not, how do you say this? Were these guys not just crapping in their own nest? I mean, <laughs> you you kind of crap and fall back in it. How did they think they would ever get another job? I just can't believe that's for real. So they were going to kill professional wrestling, it seemed like, I guess, everywhere. Yeah, you know, well, no, no doubt about it. I mean, fans can judge for themselves. Uh, if they want to go to YouTube and they want to search for the Plan B video, uh, it's absolutely shocking, man. And uh, and it would have definitely killed professional wrestling wherever it was seen. You know, and, and I think their plan may have been even more devious than that. Uh, thankfully, they realized, like you said just a second ago, if they killed the sport, where the heck are they going to wrestle? They would be finished as well, right? Exactly, yes. So, so there would have been no place left to wrestle because it would close down wrestling. It would have uh, smartened up every fan 
in the world. So I think they plan to use the video. Uh, their plan went far beyond the, the, the deviousness of doing it. Mm-hmm. I think they plan to use the video for ransom. They were going to blackmail the promoters all over the world. <laughs> Get in touch with them, threaten them with what they had, send them a copy of it, and say, if you don't send us some money, we're going to send this video out to the news outlets in your territory. These guys were like the, I guess they were they were pretending to be the bad guys from the James Bond movie or something. I don't know. That's that's even more diabolical than the first idea. Obviously, it never happened. But all right. So what about the video? What happened to it? Well, I have no idea. You know, I got a copy of it, uh, you know, sent to me. Uh, I didn't even keep the recording of the copy of it. I was so shocked. I, I wanted to go strangle those guys. I mean, like, what, what are you? What were y'all going to do, right? So, uh, so I had no idea, you know, that they'd been released, and uh, you know, the and it never was in the forty years. Thank goodness it was never released. But uh, obviously, few people, if any, knew it was ever even made. Wow! Listen, for real, you could do an entire studcast on this subject, this topic alone. Uh, uh, and and you came back and you were still friends with some of these guys down the line. You and Ronnie Garvin have always had a, a, a lifelong friendship. So so what other blockbusters do you have for us today? If you're just getting started with that little nugget in the in the this first sports hidden history lesson. Well, I mean it's it's a pretty good name for it. I mean this is <laughs> definitely hidden history here, man. Uh, yes. And, uh, and it's still not out there, and it's still not real history. So, uh, so several more reasons for the failure is what I have uh, of that smooth transition of Southeastern wrestling uh, from me to the Georgia's owners that I was expecting, you know. So, so in the same conversation, the day that they agreed to buy Knoxville, I asked how many of the wrestlers that I presently had in the territory would they be interested in keeping after the sale, right? And I was trying to help them to get off to a good start uh, by using the wrestlers that I had there that had been there and they were already over. It was going to help them right away to draw bigger crowds when they opened up the, and, you know, that uh, they were going to be using fans that were recognized. And uh, that would then they could do that and ride on those guys' backs until they got their own stars over. So, so they said, uh, you know... Uh, uh, they 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 had talked about this, obviously. I could tell because right away they said, we only want four guys, Ron. And they said, we'd like to have Dick Slater, Paul Orndorff, Ox Baker, and the angel, Frank Morrell. Well, hmm. Slater and Orndorff, I, I, I could agree with them on them. I mean, both of those guys were great talents, undoubtedly, right? Mm-hmm. Ox Baker, though, had only been in the ter- Tennessee Territory for a couple of weeks. He really wasn't even over yet himself, really, you know. And then the angel, Frank Morrell, gosh, I always thought he was the first match guy, you know. I had no idea why they asked for him at all. You mentioned that before. That is interesting. Yeah, I mean, where did they come up with Frank Morrell? So uh, so <laughs> they passed on the top, a lot of top stars. They passed on the Mongolian Stomper, Tora Tanaka, Tony Charles, Jimmy Golden. Rafael Austin, Alexis Smirnoff, Dino. I mean, there were a lot of great guys there. So I, I, I was like, guys, uh, 
I said, is that all you want? Aren't you going to reconsider? I said, some of these guys are really over, and they're going to definitely help you, you know, Mm. and they'll help keep the houses up until you get the opportunity to get your own guys over. Wow. So you mean, and and I'm a little surprised too, and I don't know if you you probably did totally expect that they would take like the Mongolian Stomper, Tora Tanaka, Tony Charles, some of the, some of your your more gifted athletes and very over stars. Yeah, of course. You know they don't want those guys. <laughs> wow. I, I was like, you know, and I didn't want to go back and start naming them again. I thought maybe y'all didn't hear me correctly. You know, but uh, so that's right. You know, I mean they they just didn't want them. So I tried my best to convince them. But but it was about that point in this conversation that I realized that they thought they weren't going to have any trouble here, right? Following the wrestlers that I had used for years to make a success out of the territory, they didn't think they needed them. We, they, and they, they had great talent, but they weren't over in Knoxville. They didn't mean anything in Knoxville. So so I tried one last idea on them. And, that I believe they would definitely see as a as being a real possibility, and definitely, uh, not only could but maybe would lead to a smooth transition from my talent to theirs. So I told Barnett how impressed I was with how he ended the Georgia War by buying out Ann Gunkel, uh, who was the uh, opposition to the NWA promotion. And, uh, and he bought her out instead of continuing letting the war go on for maybe years more than what had already gone. So, uh, and sometimes, you know, they flattery with some people uh, will kind of get the door open for you, you know. So I told him, you know, I said, I have an idea for you guys. And, you know, and I, and I think this might put an end to the war right away and build your business in the process. So I told them, you know, they should consider instead of buying out the Knoxville competition, to go make an offer to the company's best two baby faces. Mm. Go to Ronnie Garvin and Ron Wright and make them an offer. That Garvin and Wright, uh, you know, both of those guys have been huge draws in the Southeastern Territory, and that was obviously going to help them instantly by adding those two guys to the crew. Mm -hmm. And that it was also going to bring back two of the fans' favorites. And at the same time, it was going to show how powerful their company was to be able to just go and get the best wrestlers that the other guys had, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, and I told him, you know, obviously, I said, this is going to bump up your house each week. But I said, even more important, when you get their two top baby faces, you're going to destroy them. And uh, they'll, there'll be an instant <laughs> loss for them of the two best stars. And that's going to push that company Toward closing up right away. Make them enough that they can't refuse. Yeah, that's brilliant, Ron. So, but why didn't you do that yourself and keep the territory? Well, that's exactly what they asked me. To. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they understood it was brilliant, and they were, they were like, well, why, what the heck are you selling it for then, right? Uh, right. <laughs> so so then I, I explained, uh, which way I was honest. Right? I said, I've been through such stress and disappointment. Uh, over the insult, basically, of these two guys that I really thought a lot of, Garvin and, and Ron Wright, in particular, leaving my company. 
And, uh, you know, and after the way I had treated him and the money that I'd made him, you know, I said, I'm not able, I can't deal with him. I don't want to deal with him anymore. And, you know, and that, and that, that, that what I needed was to get away from Tennessee. Or I was maybe going to leave the sport entirely, if not. I said, guys, I've dealt mm-hmm. with this, and I, I want no part of it anymore. It's a good business. It can go this, and, and it can take off if you do what I uh, what I just uh, advised you, man. So, and most important of all, I said, I got another territory, and it's a great one, and I need to get down there and focus on it. So, uh, I even then pushed it another point. I said, uh, I'll give you an idea how to pay these guys. I said, "What if I were you, I would put them on a guarantee, pay them a thousand dollars a week and don't just book them in this territory, book them in your territory. I said, Ron Wright in Georgia is going to be a star. I said, they've never <laughs> seen anybody like that. Right? I said, this is, it was, it was, I don't know, man. I don't know why they didn't, why they didn't go for it. Had Ron Wright ever been outside of the Knoxville territory? Uh, he had been in Florida. He'd come down there on a vacation that, uh, about two weeks every year. Uh, but I don't think he ever probably went to Georgia territory. So you as know, far as as far as wrestling, had he had he ever been out of the the territory? Was that that was his home? Obviously, yeah. It, this was East Tennessee was his home. He worked some for. Uh, Wow, for Roy and Nick out of uh, Nashville, and he'd go to Memphis occasionally. Yeah, but I don't think he ever worked in Georgia a single time. He would. You're right. He he, he would have been a hoot times two. That's a country saying right there. But that fits Ron right. He would have been. Uh, uh, people would have gone crazy over this guy on, on Georgia television and Georgia wrestling. All right, but uh, so did they jump on that? I mean, that could have ended it all fast. Yeah. Well. <laughs> They said, well, you know, well, that's a great idea, you know. And they said, oh, we'll, we'll consider it, you know. But I knew by the way they answered me that they thought they didn't need any ideas or help in mm-hmm. any way. Mm-hmm. So I also knew at that point the chances were very good that the Southeastern fans were going to end up watching their wrestling continue to go down, down, down. Wow. All right. So, Stud, what is the lesson in the lesson today? Well, you know, I guess it's, uh, you know, if I had to put it in one sentence, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like the, the timeless old story. Uh, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. <laughs> I love it. All right. No wonder they didn't make it. All right. Is, if this is any indication of the hidden history you're going to start giving us on each stud cast, Ron. I can't wait for more. This has been a lot of fun. I, we, we're just getting going on this stud cast. It's been absolutely mesmerizing. So I, I got one more question on a similar subject that somebody told me. Did Jim Barnett and Fred Ward, did they ever try to buy the Gulf Coast territory from Lee Fields like before you did, maybe back in 77 or so? Uh, that's a great question, Dave. And, uh, and, and, and boy, it kind of fits with uh, what we're talking about today in a way too, right? I mean, it's the same for Jim Barnett and he bought me out. He was trying to buy out, uh, and he was dealing with Lee Fields on the Gulf coast territory in 1976 and 77, uh, before I ever talked to Lee about it. And, uh, 
and and since you brought it up, that might make a great subject for next week's hidden history lesson, man. Mm-hmm. And in fact, mm-hmm. Jim Barnett made a deal with Lee Fields to buy the territory first before I ended up with it. Okay, so talk about hidden history. That's that's going to be something special. It really is. So that's an interesting for this so far a really interesting first part of this studcast. A Knoxville lesson this week with a Gulf Coast lesson maybe lined up for next week. I think that's really cool. That's what I call keeping it in the house. So when we come back, let's do the break now. This is a good time for it. After the break, when we come back, we're going to be in Mobile, Alabama on the first night of 1980 for another tremendous card, TV show, results, and attendances in the Gulf Coast Territory. That is coming up when this New Year's Day studcast continues okay and on this break today on new year's day stud let's take a moment to kind of explain what's going on i notice uh, a lot of people and i saw some of this uh, indications on your social media a lot of people really enjoyed the christmas day studcast number 330 which was released at midnight the the point that santa began to come in everywhere around the world so at midnight on, on christmas eve this one is now on but we set this thing up to air beginning at midnight on New Year's Eve as we launched into a new year. Hey, and we appreciate everybody. And a lot of folks are saying, man, these are cool that you're doing these on these major holidays. But we're coming back to our regular schedule on the 10th. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, we're going to go back to Wednesdays again. And like I said uh, earlier in here, I've been wanting to do this I always these these dates, this Christmas and the New Year's days are so good for wrestling. Always were for the crowds and people getting involved and loving it. Uh, that I wanted to do a stud cast. I've always wanted to do them on these two days just to see what type of reaction we got. And got a great reaction last week. Hopefully they uh, will enjoy it this week and. And then we're going to go back to our normal Wednesdays that we uh, always release on. And uh, I just want to thank everybody uh, again all over the world. We get we have fans everywhere. It's pretty amazing. I want to thank them all over the world for uh, for their for their support, their tremendous continued support. It's amazing. And uh, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, once again, uh, Merry Christmas to everybody. And uh, today is the day. Happy New Year from here on uh, into 2024. And wow, uh, it's just been a pleasure. And uh, I'm so very happy that uh, we have an opportunity to to deal with people the way we are able to with these studcasts. Oh, indeed. And again, thank you for listening on Christmas Day and on this New Year's Day. And again, we won't air this Wednesday, the 3rd. We'll be back on January the 10th so enjoy these studcasts hey it's a great time to go back and maybe pick up on some studcasts that you've missed you can find them all at tnstud.com that's tnstud.com every studcast 331 of them are there plus a bunch of other stuff as well and you can also catch up at at youtube southeastern rewind on youtube but we'll be back on january the 10th once again happy new year from the tennessee stud 
Ron Fuller. It's me, David Summers. Thank you all for being with us on this New Year's Day 2024. We're going to have to get used to putting that down on the checks and stuff like that, whatever, whenever you write the day. And it takes us, it usually takes me till February to figure it all out. All right, so Ron, let's get going. Let's get right back into it and see if we got another history lesson or something going on that we can uh, have some fun with. It's always intriguing on these studcasts. How about the first card in the new decade in all three major Gulf Coast markets that first week of January 1980? Okay, that's that's a that's a good place to start, and let's start with the biggest night, basically, which obviously is the first one, happened to be on uh, January first, nineteen eighty, and uh, we were in Mobile, Alabama, but we weren't in the little bitty uh, expo hall. We're in the main arena for this one, has ten thousand seats in it. So the opening match was another handicap match, uh, Joe LaDuke versus uh, both of the Oates brothers out of Columbus, Georgia, Jerry Oates and Ted Oates. Uh, then there was an I Quit match. Uh, it was the second match on this card. And uh, that kind of match continued until one man said, I quit or gave up on the public address, the building's public address system. Everybody in the building knew that he was giving up. Uh, that was the wrestling pro against the super pro. Uh, then there was a no disqualification. United States Junior Heavyweight Championship match. Uh, Tony Charles was defending against the great Mephisto. Uh, fourth match on this great card was the Southeastern Tag title match. Uh, the loser of the fall in this match had to leave Southeastern. The champion Mongolians, they were managed by obviously the great Mephisto, defending against Jerry Stubbs and Eddie Boulder, who had just arrived the week before. Fifth match, was a six-man tornado tag match, which meant all six men were going to be in the ring at the same time for wow. the entire match. It had a notice qualification clause. It was Jimmy Golden, Norville Austin, and the Mongolian Stomper <laughs> against me and Rob and our father, Buddy. Main event, <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then it topped it all off with a 17-man over-the-top rope triple chance battle royal with $10,000 going to the two winners. See, that right there, bang, that's how you do it on New Year's. That is so cool on the first day of the year. That card should have gotten the decade off to a great start. I'm sure the TV show to promote it was loaded as well. So how did you set up the TV show? How did it begin? Well, it opened with the great Mephisto sitting at the, at the set with Charlie Platt. And behind them was the Mongolian tag champions. Uh... They, they had belts. They had all the belts at that point, just about, except for Tony Charles' belt. So uh, they had the two tag belts. So they had the Stomper had a, the singles belt. They had the TV trophy. They had all that stuff piled up on both ends of the desk where Charlie and, uh, and Mephisto were sitting. And uh, so Mephisto opened the show before Charlie could even speak, you know, and Charlie, Charlie doesn't, didn't care much for Mephisto anyway. So this one gets off to a little bit of a fiery start. And Mephisto, he was he was on fire, man. I mean, and right away he went to bragging about all the belts and the trophies in front of him on the desk and that he was going to add another one to this, Charlie Platt. I'm going to add another belt to this pile. And, uh, and he goes, uh, and this one I'm going to win myself. 
you know, and uh, and he says, then it's I'm going to win it in this first week of 1980. He goes, I'm going to be wrestling against that stupid Englishman Tony Charles uh, for his United <laughs> States Junior Heavyweight Belt, and he's stupid because he has no chance of beating me, and I'm going to get his belt. So so Charlie tried to break in, you know, and he need just to welcome fans and say hello and. Whatever, but Mephisto just started, took off again, man. He talked right over him again. Started talking about how weak the wrestlers, the Americans and the English wrestlers were. You know, they're no, they're no challenge to any, any, uh, any Saudi Arabian, you know. And then finally, uh, so Charlie managed to get his, wedged his way in there. And he, you know, saying, uh, and then he, he started basically running down this big two ring over the top rope. Uh, Battle Royal is coming up in the week and $10,000 in prize money going to the two winners. And uh, and uh, in that match alone, you know, Charlie was starting to at least be able to talk and Mephisto jumped on top of him again. And and he started saying how much he loved that, that American money, you know. He said those American infidel promoters, you know, they – they have a whole lot of bread. And he goes, me and my Mongols, we love to take their dollars back to the fatherland, to Saudi Arabia, you know. <laughs> and then he says, uh, you know, and he says, that battle royal, he says, it's perfect for the three of us. You know, I got two men and myself. He says, oh, we're going to use their, our superior intellect and, uh, and the three powerful men that we are. We're going to work together against all these infidels in both these rings. He goes, we're just going to be tossing them out back so fast that uh, this thing may only last five minutes. So he said, the idiot Americans, he said, they only think of themselves. So he says, uh, the three of us, uh, the Middle Easterners in this group, because uh, we may be one, but, but, uh, but taking care of this match is going to be Arabic fun. You know, he was like, Wow, he, he was really rolling, man. So then as if the battle royal money wasn't enough, he had already said, you know, if that, you know, he, he said that we're going to win that money, ain't no doubt about it. He goes, but he goes, wow, another, I've arranged for that ugly American, Jerry Stubbs, uh, to be thrown out of Southeastern Wrestling. I talked to you guys about it. We've got to get rid of him. He goes, now he's in a match in which if he loses the match, He's got to go from Southeastern. And he said, it'll happen. He's going to lose his last tag match here. He's going to be banished from Southeastern Wrestling. And uh, Jerry Stubbs is just going to be another American eliminated by, by my Mongols. So he ended up saying he was so excited about all the money he was going to have by the end of the week, by his new belt he was going to win, by Jerry Stubbs being gone from his life, and he says, and now he says, I'm going to go to the ring and celebrate and by hurting another American infidel. <laughs> so, <laughs> so then the Mongolians, he just trotted off to the ring, man. And, and uh, the Mongolians, they collected all their hardware. And they followed along behind him and stood by the ring with their belts and their TV trophy. And they stayed there until he did what he said. He hurt his opponent, man, when he put him in that extremely painful camel clutch and uh, got his hand raised in victory. You know, I keep up with you and, and Jerry Stubbs probably more than any, well, you're my two favorite wrestlers, uh, that, I, that I know. All right. And Charlie Platt, uh, well, he's not a wrestler, but listen, I don't think Jerry's that ugly. 
<laughs> I, Jerry's a good guy, that so let it be words. let it be known that I defended Jerry's looks. Just let it be known. All right, so it sounds like Mephisto was having a kind of a bad day. So who was next in the ring? Well, Mephisto so called ugly American, Jerry Stubbs, man. <laughs> Come on, oh, come on. And so was it Jerry's new partner, uh, Eddie Bowman, you know? So uh, they got a very impressive win, man. Uh, you know, and, and obviously you, you had the you had these uh, your monitors and dressing rooms and uh, all the fans had monitors in the studio. Jerry Stubbs heard this opening, right? So, uh, you know, and they got an impressive win because Jerry Stubbs was mad. I mean, and you could tell it in the ring. He didn't take long to get him, get the boys a, a victory. And uh, so then they both came to the set, you know, and they weren't supposed to come to the set. But Stubbs just got it. As soon as he got the win, he just busted out to the set. Man. And, uh, and he said, uh, he, said he told Charlie, he said, I'm going to ruin that Arab's week. He, goes, he said, I'm going to personally beat one of his mongrels, you know? And he said, and when I do that, that mongrel's got to leave. And, they, and then he loses his tag team. He only has one mongrel now. And he goes, and then I'm going to make sure that that Arab doesn't win a single penny in the battle royal. He's not going to get a cent out of it. Oh, it sounds like our boy Jerry was fired up too. All right. How about the personality profile? It was all about the upcoming two-ring, triple chance, over-the-top rope, battle roll with $10,000. Going to be going to the two winners. And uh, Rob and my father and I, uh, we met Charlie Platt about three hours before the TV show in the Houston County Farm Center. Obviously, there's nobody been there. Uh, we had, had a second ring that had been brought in. It had been set up apron to apron with the one that had been used the night before. Uh, on the weekly Dothan Friday night events. So, you know, we got the two rings there uh, where they're going to explain one of the greatest new ideas in the sport history. At this point, there hadn't been a whole lot of two ring battle royals. And we're going to, we were going to tell fans where the first one was held. We're going to tell them uh, exactly how it was done, you know, because it's a kind of a complicated event. It's not a, not a little, uh, uh, not a nothing happening type of battle royal. It's a very, very, uh, it was an, a, it was an awesome event. Basically these two ring royals. Wow. All right. So that's a really a great idea, but if you had never seen one of these matches, you would have no idea what was going on and how it was even won. So the four of you were in an empty farm center. What happened? Well, Charlie did the personality profile. We came back after it was recorded. He did it by himself. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, and when he did it, uh, the, basically, when you, if you just talked about the profile at this point, uh, you know, he thanked the three of us, beginning of the profile, for being there with him to help with the explanation. And then he kind of took it from there. And uh, so this is kind of how that profile went. Uh, there were all kinds of battle roars, Dave. I mean, uh, most with only one rule. If you were thrown over the top rope and your feet touched the floor, you were eliminated. And you went back to the dressing room. And the last man standing in the ring was the winner. And, uh, and he almost always won a cash prize. Bang. That was it. That was the end of the battle royal. Well, Charlie explained the two ring over top rope, triple chance battle royal. Uh, first of all, he explained where it came from. 
And the first one was done in Tennessee, uh, in Memphis, to be exact. And, uh, and I think the first one was probably done in about 1973, uh, because uh, me and Rob were in that battle roll. Uh, and it was so much more. These triple chance uh, two ringers, they were so much more than a normal battle roll. So Charlie tried to keep the explanation short. And so obviously there were two rings. They were sitting side by side. And all four of us, uh, um, me, Rob, Dad, and uh, Charlie, started the video in the, in ring one, it was called. And uh, Charlie did the entire explanation, saying it was called a triple chance battle royal because you had three chances to lose before you could win. So the first chance came in ring one with all the contestants started out. That everybody began like a regular royal in ring one. Nobody in ring two at all. And uh, then you had to throw your opponents over the top rope into ring two. And if they were thrown out on any other side other than into ring two, they weren't eliminated. They could come back into the ring one and continue. So once you got thrown into ring two, you lost your first chance at winning. And at that point, uh, Rob and I, we both went over into ring two when they were shooting the cameras to, you know, let them know that now you got uh, two people in ring one there. You had me and Rob in ring two. Mm -hmm. Charlie continued, you know, and he, he said, as the men were thrown into ring two, the battle royal continued in that ring as well. So the royal at this point was going on in two rings at the same time. You got two battle royals going on and two rings side by side. So uh, when you were thrown out of ring two, didn't make any difference on whatever side you went out of ring two. If your feet touched the floor, you were eliminated from the battle royal. So only four men had that third chance to win. So it came, it came that uh, there were only uh, two men left in, in each ring. Uh, there was me and Rob in the ring two. There was Dad and Charlie over in ring one. So the winners of ring two, they came in, through the ropes and back into ring one. And then you had a tag match for the third chance to win. Hmm. That's why it's called triple chance. And the two winners of that tag match were going to split the $10,000 battle royal prize money. Okay. That's a pretty good explanation from Charlie. And just as you said, there was a lot more to those triple chance battle Royals than the old fashioned ones. That's for sure. All right. So how about the third segment of that particular TV show? Well, that was your man, the wrestling pro. And you know, he opened it up with Charlie at the set and uh, they watched the video of the last match between the pro Leon Baxter is the pro's name and the super pro. And it was a tremendous Texas death match. I watched it a while uh, great. And, uh, and it ended after the fifth fall. Uh, the Super Pro wasn't able to get back to his feet after the 30-second rest period. And uh, they go the rest period. They ring the bell. You got a 10 count to get to your feet. And uh, he wasn't able to get to his feet before that 10 count. And the reason the Super Pro wasn't able to answer the count is because he had been put to sleep by the wrestling pro at the end of the <laughs> fifth fall. And the wrestling pro during the 30-second rest period refused to wake him up. Right? <laughs> so he laid there out until the bell rang for the 10 count, and then he went over and woke him up. Bang, right? get up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, he'd, just, he'd been out for a minute and a half probably, and 
you know, he wasn't able to get to his feet by 10. So, uh, you know, obviously the pro won. So, so this was the fourth week in a row that these two mask guys had battled each other. Uh, the wrestling pro had gone from, you know, three weeks ago, thinking that the super pro was just a punk in their first match. I think that's what he called him. I'll wrestle that punk. What's he doing calling himself a pro? And, uh, and at this point, Things had changed between those two guys. And he admitted to Charlie that, he said, Charlie, this guy's one of the toughest guys I've ever wrestled. He goes, uh, you know, he, he, didn't, he didn't know really what to say about him, you know. And, and he <laughs> said, you know. And uh, so they were going at it again on this super card. And they were going to be in an I quit match, which is one of the most dangerous of all matches because you had to submit. Mitch, you're going to be in a lot of pain before you give up. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to submit on that house microphone. That's the humiliating part of it. And that's why it, those matches, guys got hurt because they, they went farther than they should have, yep. trying to not to have to say, I give up. Wow. Right? Wow. So, so then the bell rang for the next TV match. And, uh, and the Super Pro was in the next TV match. So he came to the ring. And he was just outspoken as the first day he arrived in Southeastern when he started, you know, saying, I'm here for the wrestling pro. <laughs> That's the only reason I'm here in this territory. And he the pro's still sitting at the set with Charlie when he gets in the ring. And he just screams over there at him, you know, and he goes, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> why don't you just come on over here? Get in here, wrestling pro. And he goes, uh, you know, I'll make you quit in here, right here in the TV ring. You know, so the, you know, the Super Pro, uh, you know, uh, he, he, so, you know, well, Pro didn't go. He, you know, he, he didn't need to prove he was man. So, but, uh, so the wrestling pro, the Super Pro, you know, uh, and he's in this I quit match, and I'm sure it was the first one he'd ever had. And uh, so he punished the guy that he was wrestling. He put him in a simple hammerlock. And uh, for about 10 minutes, uh, he did nothing but hammerlocks and stomped his arm and, and cranked his arm. And uh, he had the guy screaming about uh, five minutes into the match. Wow. And uh, screaming loud enough, the guy would, he would make him scream. He wouldn't let him go until the guy screamed like he was, like they were going to have to scream into the microphone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I quit. I give up. The guy's just crying, right? And, uh, you know, so. So he basically proved to the pro right there that, that you know, that he, he wasn't going to be an easy guy to beat in the submission match. And obviously he knew how to make somebody submit. So, you know, he was making a point, and I'm sure the pro caught it. Yeah, these two have been going at it for weeks. I can't wait to see how, how it's going to end. I, and i got to ask you, remind me, and I've seen this, this type match maybe a couple of times. But when they would when they would request the microphone, was the ring announcer there to hand it to the referee? How did that happen? Yeah, yeah. And the and the, now the uh, microphone had a long extension cord on it. Right, right. So they might be on the far side of the ring, you know. So the referee would go to the the, the announcer. Announcer would hand him a microphone, and he would drag that cord across the ring. Okay. Put it up into the guy's face. And, right. Lots of times the guy didn't quit either on the first time that that microphone came. Yeah. You know, he would go, oh, I can't. No, no. He'd no, I was going to say, they might go, no, 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 or something like that. Yeah, yeah, he would change his mind and he would, you know, 
<laughs> these matches were really interesting matches, and it was a really humiliating type of match. Wow. All right, so who was in the last match? Well, the last match, before the last match, me and Rob and my father, uh, we went to the set with Charlie, and uh, we watched the six-man tag match from the week before. It was with it was with uh, Jimmy Golden, Norvell Austin, and the Mongolian Stomper. And uh, boy, it was a it was a really violent match. Man, four of the six guys, four of the six of us in the ring were bleeding, and the Mephisto was in their corner. Uh, he got their team disqualified, kind of intentionally, I think. Uh, about the time <laughs> Joe LaDuke showed up at ringside. You know, um, and Mephisto had, had already gotten involved a couple of times. And when he saw Joe LaDuke, he got the other team disqualified because uh, Joe LaDuke just shot in the ring and he went straight after the Mongolian stomper. And uh, Mephisto never let him touch the stomper. Uh, Mephisto uh, pointed his stomper to the dressing room. And uh, and I think the stomper actually ran to the dressing room. So so we had asked for a return six-man tag match. Uh, we wanted this Tornado Rules match, Dad, Rob, and I. And, and that meant that all six guys were going to be in the ring at the same time. There was going to be no disqualification this time. And uh, we wanted to settle this for good, you know, uh, Gone on a long time with Jimmy Golden and Norvell Austin, and now you got the Stomper involved in it too. So, and then we were about to leave the set when Joe LaDuke came out of the dressing room. Joe hadn't been seen on this TV show at all, and as soon as he came out of the dressing room, there was a big roar from the studio audience. Joe was, he had become a star. He had yet to, he was in the first match, right, on this card. <laughs> so he had yet to be in a main event or up the card, and they were in love. Fans loved him, you know. He'd both <laughs> bus, he'd, he'd, uh, he'd done the tug of war. I mean, he, he had done it all. He was beating two guys every night. So then uh, he came to, to the set to, to talk to us, and he asked us, he says, I know that, the great Mephisto is going to be in their corner. And he goes, would you guys mind if I stood in your corner? And uh, so mm -hmm. he said, uh, Rob was the first one up, man. He hugged his neck, man. Like, <laughs> you kidding, right? He goes, hey, of course, we'd love to have you, man. You can be in our corner anytime. Mm -hmm. So uh, just then uh, the bell rang for the last TV match. And Jimmy Golden, Norville Austin, and the Stomper, they came to the came to the ring. And while they got the studio all riled up uh, before, uh, before, you know, and especially the Stomper. It was the Stomper's first time to charge the crowd, and wow, did he do it. I mean, <laughs> he just, here they all went. They, you know, he about emptied the studio, and uh, then they finally came back in to watch the match. And uh, so then they crushed, man. They, they had three guys they were wrestling, and they just absolutely crushed them because uh, mm. they wanted to, They wanted us to know what the, that they were serious. And so basically the 1980 Southeastern War was about to begin. Wow. All right. So that's a great TV show right there for sure. All right. Let's talk about Mobile. What happened four days later, New Year's Day, 1980 in Mobile? Well, you know, we had a tremendous card, man, and uh, and and when and you know a card is great when you got a guy like Joe LaDuke in the first match. So, 
Joe got the night off to a great start, man. He got himself another big win. He beat both of those old boys, uh, you know, and, uh, and those guys were great little wrestlers. And he didn't do anything uh, illegal. I mean, he just, he wrestled with them and uh, bear-hugged them both, and they both gave up. So, uh, you know, uh, Joe was Joe was just getting, he was really becoming a star without having done anything. So that was following, you know, uh, followed that match was followed by the wrestling pro and the super pro in the I Quit match. And the, and the wrestling pro won that match. Uh, after the first, the super pro bloodied him up and ripped his face out of his mask. And, uh, wow, was just kicking his butt, man. And, uh, so, but he was, he got him in the sleeper hold. He was able to put him in a sleeper hold twice before he, you know, he, and he couldn't, but the bad part for, for the pro is, uh, the super pro was asleep. Now he can't give up, right? So you got to wake him up. He put him to sleep. He woke him up. Then the referee put the microphone there in his face and the, and the super pro wouldn't give up. So, uh, Pro put him to sleep again. He didn't know. I don't think he knew how to hurt him other than do the sleeper. So he put him to sleep again. And uh, when they brought the, and then he woke him up. They brought the microphone, and uh, and they ended up having to stretcher the super pro back to the dressing room. He never. He was about to. I think the pro another another sleeper, and he might have killed the guy. It was it was dangerous at that point to keep doing it to him. So then the great Mephisto uh, in the United States heavyweight championship match against Tony Charles that he had boasted he was going to win. He did it just exactly what he said he was going to do. He used his camel clutch, uh, but he had knocked Charles unconscious. Uh, he had something hidden in his tights. The referee got knocked down. He knocked Tony Charles out. And when the ref came due, he was sitting in his back with that camel clutch on him and, uh, so Tony had to give it up, and uh, so, so the then the, obviously the next match, uh, Jerry Stubbs lost, man. And wow, the fans were so sad to see Jerry go, uh, and uh, you know it was uh, it was his last uh, Southeastern match, uh, you know, and he wasn't going to be back for a while. But when he comes back, Jerry Stubbs, and we're talking about probably in 1981. Uh, He's going to begin to make a reputation in Southeastern that few wrestlers ever did. I mean, Jerry's going to come back and become a monster star. Uh, Six-man tag was just about all the crowd could take. And I mean, eight, eight of the 17 guys on the card were at the ring. Six of us in the ring, uh, Joe Duke on the, on the floor, uh, Mephisto in the other corner on the outside. So, uh, Match was really, really a tough match, and it went on for quite a while. Dad, Dad got hurt in the course of the match, and they actually carried him to the dressing room before the match was over. And, and there was no winner declared in the match, and, uh, and I'd never seen this before. Instead of the contestants uh, going back to the dressing room uh, in a match like that and then coming back for the battle roar, uh, we, everybody in the ring just kept fighting. It was crazy. And uh, so uh, the other wrestlers came. 
saw that we weren't coming back to the dressing room and they finally came to the ring. And so everybody got in the ring. We're still fighting. They were introducing the battle royal. And, uh, you know, there was never an end to the, the tag match. So you couldn't hear yourself think uh, because we were in this, in the big building. And and it was it was packed. I'm telling you, there was thousands and thousands in there. And uh, mm. so uh, I guess uh, who ended up, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, and, and you know, it, it it was it was really confusing type of uh, situation here as to what went on. Wow, I I guess I don't. You know, I'll do this, Dave. Mm-hmm. Okay. You get the two guys going to end up in ring one here. Let's just talk about what went on in the ring one. Right. Uh, what two guys do you think would have been the last two in ring one? In ring one? Yeah. I, I have no idea, but I'm thinking probably some of the larger dudes. Yeah. <laughs> the two largest dudes, my man. Mm-hmm. Jola Duke and the Mongolian Stalker. Wow. Are going to be partners. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. And they sat there. It was supposed to, they supposedly, you know, they were going to just stay over there and watch what was going on in ring two until that ring got down to two guys. And then uh, they were going to come back and then wrestle. And then that was the way this two ring battle royals were set up. But uh, this, this was no normal. Uh, the two ring uh, battle royal. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so as soon as uh, they were down to the last two, and the rest of the guys were all over in the ring too, uh, they they just started touring each other. Right? I mean, they started fight. They're going to be partners, right? Is <laughs> in the end of this, and they 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 both got each other bleeding, and. Uh, they're they're fighting against each other until the you know ring two was getting down to about the last four men in it and they were still fighting so in fact they fought out of the ring one and they started fighting back toward the dressing room uh, the police kind of followed them you know and uh, so there was a huge uh, bunch of police in the area trying to keep people back away from those two guys going at it you know and uh, Fans didn't know where to focus. You got the two ring going on, and the ring two, and uh, then you got the fight between uh, the, the Mongol and uh, and uh, the Duke. And wow, it was just a, it was a, it was fight going on the entire like the whole building was on fighting. And eventually, in the Duke, they fought their way back to the dressing room. Wow. So. <laughs> All right, so how about the final tag match to win the Battle Royal and the money? Well, normally, you know, you would add the last two guys in ring two uh, wrestling against the two guys that had won in ring one. So it kind of became apparent to the referees, they're watching what's going on. You had a referee in each ring that uh, the guys in ring one, had <laughs> they had fought the bed dresser and they weren't coming back. Right. So uh, they were smart enough to stop the action in ring two when there were four men left, still left in ring two, so that they could have a tag match. So two of those guys were going to be against the other two guys. And uh, and those two, those four guys was Jimmy Golden and Norvell 
and me and Rob. So, uh, so once we got down to four guys, then uh, Norvell and Golden went over into ring one, and me and Rob caught our breath, and we went into ring one. And uh, so we had a tag team match uh, against, uh, you know, for the money. And, uh, but there wasn't a winner to, the, <laughs> to this one either because uh, Rob and I and, and, and those, four, those two guys, uh, we knocked the referees down a bunch of times. They finally disqualified all four of us and stopped the match. And, you know, so it was crazy. Wow. All right. So now I, I see why you call this studcast number 331. This one is called World's Wildest Battle Royal. You just summed all that up and you just answered that. So who got the money? Well, well, I guess you're going to have to wait <laughs> until the next Stuttcast. Come man. on, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, you know, I mean, uh, you know, they, they, they stopped the match, you know. So uh, <laughs> so that's going to have to go to the, the next card. So, uh, you know, it's going to be one of the great matches that's going to happen in the second week of 1980. Yeah, I should have known, Stud. All right. Can you tell us about the attendances for those three major cities that weekend you had to i'm assuming because it was new year's day you had to have done really well well man yeah you know and that i can i can give you that i can tell you the answer to that i mean all three cities had the same card uh montgomery broke five thousand for the first time uh since we started uh, southeastern down there uh and the first first time uh it, the crowd was 5200 in montgomery dothan was packed Wow, to the walls, just about. Uh, it had 5,500. Mobile had 8,600 fans in the main arena. Uh, almost 20,000 in those three cities alone. Wow. All right, that's it. Man, I tell you, this has been a great stud cast, Ron, and it's not over yet. We still have time. We're going to do it on the first day of the year. It's a learning tree question. This one comes from Rick Fields. In Charleston, West Virginia, he asked, have you ever regretted not making more trips to Japan, especially in the early 1970s before you started your wrestling company when you were in the mix for the NWA title? And then, and the guy's name is Rick Fields, man. That, right. Uh, yes. Wow, you know, <laughs> well, we definitely know some Fields, I can tell you that. Man. Right. So, uh, no, one of them used to be, <laughs> used to wrestle, Ricky Fields, right? Lee Fields has a son named Ricky Fields. Yes. And, uh, you know, he's sometimes been parts of many of these stud casts. So, so uh, he may, Ricky may still live in Mobile, Alabama. I've not talked to him in many, many years. Uh, but that's a real coincidence, Mr. Fields, uh, that your name is Rick Fields as well. And, and, uh, and I'd say, uh, well, thanks for your question. That's all I can say is. And I didn't. I didn't make uh, only one one tour uh, of Japan until 1983. Uh, and it, and this is a really good question. I have to admit that you know. I mean, uh, and then I've done some stuff lately about Japan. Quite a bit of stuff about Japan and uh, matches with I had with Bob over there and whatever. But but anyway, my first tour of Japan wasn't until 1983. I was 35 years old the first time I ever went to wrestle in Japan. And, uh, and I found it a bit of a struggle, man, because of the travel and everything else. And, you know, 
And, uh, and Mr. Fields, I would have probably uh, been smarter to do that at 25 rather than 35. <laughs> that first trip over there, right? And, and I think you may be probably right about going there uh, when I was possibly being considered for the NWA belt, if that was true. You know, I mean, you never knew who was being considered for that honor. You know, no, that was a very well-kept secret about uh, who's going to be next for that. So in the early 1970s, I, had all, I was already wrestling in uh, the one city in the world, St. Louis, Missouri, man, where the president of the NWA, Sam Mutchett, lived for most, if not all of his life. I think maybe all of his life. You know, and I was going there every other week to Keel Auditorium back in uh, 1973 and 1974. I was facing some of the biggest names in the sports history. Uh, I don't know all of the guys responsible for picking the NWA champ back in those days, but I'm pretty sure Sam Muchnick was definitely in that group, you know, and, uh, and along with uh, Sam was probably the former NWA champ, Pat O'Connor. Uh, who I'd become real friends with, who was a second-hand man to Sam Mutchley. So, so I'm sure that their eyes being personally on me every other week, man, wrestling all these guys from all over the world, probably carried a lot more weight than my not being seen by them if I had been in Japan. So I think that working in Japan uh, more might have influenced my style in the ring, but it couldn't have possibly meant more than being in that basically that most high profile, most high profile wrestling city in the world, uh, St. Louis, because of Sam Mutsmi. So, uh, thanks, Mr. Fields, for your question, man. I, I can tell you from experience, sir. Uh, lots of trips to Japan would uh, take a lot of years off of your wrestling life. <laughs> I can say that. And and mm -hmm. it it'd make you wonder if the NWA belt was worth it, man. Wow, no doubt. Another great answer, Stud. And I don't know why anyone would want to go to Japan on a wrestling tour. <laughs> wow. All right, this has really been a wild ride today. From the first hidden history lesson with the Plan B video to what to what had been really the craziest battle royal in history even to the japan question on the end you covered you covered so much this week all right so how do you top it and where do we where do we go next week how do we do that well next week fans are going to learn man i guess how since we talked about this and kind of ended up with uh with this first hidden hidden history lesson uh, uh deal today uh we're going to go back to the gulf coast territory and uh, we're going to find out uh, what happened with that Jim Barnett purchase of uh, the Gulf Coast Territory, if there really was one. And, uh, and I'm going to have to do a little bit of research uh, to make sure that I get all the information on this. I know a lot about it, but uh, we're going to talk about that. And, uh, and I can tell you this, man, the Gulf Coast Territory fans are about to be horrified, man, by the sheer brutality of what's about to happen to them in these matches that are going to be coming for week after week after week, bloodbath after bloodbath, Joe LaDuke and the Mongolian Stalker. Wow. Uh, and they're going to line up, Dave, by the thousands to see it. 
They're, they're, they're going to just, they're, it, they're, it's all they, they will all remember. There won't be a fan that saw any of these that won't tell you the worst matches, the most horrible matches they ever saw would be Joe LaDuke and the Mongolian Star. <laughs> so uh, hopefully and next week, hopefully we are going to have another learning tree question too. Yeah, I hope so. And I, I tell you what, it's uh, just going to take a second here to take this all in. Whether you're out riding down the road on this New Year's Day or after or is sitting in your favorite spot at home checking out this stud cast, this has been another uh, a terrific way I'm, and another great stud cast to kick off a brand new year. Hey, folks, you know you know the deal. You find Ron on Facebook at Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud. Like and follow him there. Automatically become friends with a living legend. Exact same thing on Twitter, now known as X. Find him at Ron Fuller Welch. Follow him there, too, the exact same way. Check out the fantastic website, tnstud.com. This studcast is going to be there with every studcast ever done. We mentioned this earlier. This is number 331 on tnstud.com. Number one is there and everyone from there all the way up to this one, you'll find every stud cast. So everyone ever done. You can also shop the stud store where you get 43 super stud cast, four different eight by 10 photos, the thrilling lion novel called Brutus personally autographed to you. Even t-shirts still on sale for only $15.99, all with free shipping. If you got a little change, a little cash in your pocket after Christmas, man, that'd be a great way to pick up some wonderful souvenirs from the Tennessee Stud. Subscribe now at YouTube Southeastern Rewind. Get the best in old school wrestling. Find 379 videos. The last 108 Studcaster there, 52 Stud Stories, 92 Short Rides with the Stud, and now 12 Ask the Stud Question and Answer Shows. Those those are loaded with information. It's all exclusively on YouTube Southeastern Rewind. It's the best deal in old school wrestling. Any final comments on this New Year's Day, Stud? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, one last happy new year, man, to everybody out there. Uh, and I want to thank everybody for the great 2023 that, uh, that, that I've had. And, uh, and, and you've been such faithful fans and hopefully we're all going to have a wonderful 2024 and please take care of yourselves and others and may God bless us all. Happy New Year, Stud, and thank you, everyone, for listening. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This Studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud. LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.